All right, if you have your Bibles, 1 Kings chapter 5. Now, um, again, as we go through First and Second Kings, one of the things that we're going to do just kind of through, through parts of the Old Testament is what we call the Old Testament at 30 or the Bible at 30,000 feet. So we're, we're not going verse by verse, chapter by, by chapter per se. We're just going to hit some highlights and, and try to cover just in a couple of weeks the entire um, First and Second Kings. So uh, we were supposed to do 10 chapters last week. We did about four and a half, five. But, um, but it was good, and this way we can, we can just kick, get some highlights when we get into some other, as we go through some other places, as we march through the Old Testament, we'll slow down a bit. But for a minute anyways, we're going to be uh, traveling at 10,000 feet. So um, last week, I, or two weeks ago now, we had the magician last week. But um, just really quickly, First Kings um, is, a, is a history book. And so part of the history is David dies. King David has died. We spent two, two books, First and Second Samuel, studying the life of, of uh, King David. Now, as you go through your Bible, so you know chronologically and and in order, you get to First and Second Kings. It's it's of a story of the the, the series of history of history of Israel of the kings, and then you get to First and Second Chronicles, which is next, and it's a lot of parallel stories. And so the the time period of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles is is contemporary. The difference is in First and Second Kings. It's covering both kingdoms, the, the two tribes in the south, the ten tribes in the north, the two tribes in the south we call Judah, the ten tribes in the north is called Israel and only Israel. And in First and Second Kings, we get stories um, kind of back and forth between both kingdoms and what's going on. And um, in First and Second Chronicles, it just deals with the southern kingdoms of, um, of Israel. And, and in north, unfortunately, when the kingdoms divided, now... Um, when did the kingdoms divide? Now, this is history, guys, so I try not to bore you too much, but I think it's important to know. I think it applies in, in, you know, as we study the Word and we do things in the Word of God. But um, King David, under King David, the, the kingdom was mostly united. All 12 tribes followed King David. Under King Solomon, the, the kingdoms were united. And then when Solomon died, and we're going to see in chapter 12 here, um, his son raised up. And his son was a, was a millennial, and he wore skinny jeans. And he, he just wasn't very smart. He didn't have the wisdom of Solomon. And what happened, and we'll, we'll get to it, but what's going to happen is King Solomon's son is going to go to um, the elders in, in Israel, and he's going to say, you know, should, what should I do about the taxes in Israel? We, we've been in a building phase. My dad built the temple. He's been building and constructing, and, and, and the taxes have been high, and there's been a lot of pressure on the people. What should I do? as the new king and the wise old men told Solomon's son to give the people a break. It's time to give them a break. So he took the advice the young man did and he went to uh, the young advisors, his buddies, his contemporaries, the other skinny jeans kids. And they said, Hey, this is what my dad did. This is what the elders are saying. What do you guys think? What should I do? And they said, man, don't listen to the elders. You, you be harder than your father Solomon was. You come in tough and you tell him, you, you thought my dad was hard. Wait till you see my tax policies and, and you tax the heck out of me. Well, unfortunately, Solomon's son takes the advice of the young kids and that's exactly what he does. When he becomes king, he goes to the people and he says, you thought my dad was rough. Wait till you see my tax policies. And he begins to tax the nation of Israel very heavily and it caused a split in the nation. And at that point, they, they split all kinds of trouble in the history of Israel. The, when the northern tribes split off from, from Solomon's son and, and it caused this division, ten in the north, two in the south, one of the things they did, because the south had Jerusalem, it had the temple, 
It had um, the Ark of the Covenant and then the holy things. When they got to the north, because they were divided, they they started to to build and make worship centers that that were not prescribed by God in the north, and they needed some kind of substitute. And so they were doing things in the north that were not um, godly. And then as we know, as the history goes on, God raises up different kings in the north and the south through the next years, um, hundreds of years. And in that, the north never had a good king, only the south. The south had several good kings throughout the years. So um, first Kings, um, first chapter, first 11 chapters, the United Kingdom, chapter 12, Solomon dies. His son takes over. That's when the kingdoms are divided. First and second Chronicles primarily just covers the south. So that was the kind of the sum there. So now as we get to chapter 5, um, where, where we are in chapter 5 is Solomon begins to make plans for the temple. Now the temple that Solomon builds um, is actually um, not very big as far as square footage. The inside part of the actual temple was only 2,700 square feet. Now the outer courts and the walls and, the, um, and then, and then um, Solomon's temple, as we know, Solomon's temple is redone or rebuilt um, by Herod, Herod the Great, who was a builder um, before Jesus. So the temple that Jesus would have turned the tables over that was there in Jesus's time, that was there in the first century, was Solomon's temple that was rebuilt, renovated by King Herod. And so we call it, it's Solomon's temple or Solomon's second temple or Herod's temple. And what's um, interesting, just temple-wise, is that in the, in the tribulation period, when Jesus comes back, when the seven-year tribulation period happens, after the rapture, before Jesus comes back, seven years, one of the things that's going to happen yet future, and it has to happen to fulfill biblical prophecy, is, is the temple in Jerusalem has to be rebuilt. Because at the three-and-a-half-year mark in, um, in the book of Daniel and Revelation, it, it talks about an event called the abomination of desolation. Anybody remember that? Yay, nay? The abomination of desolation is that event where the Antichrist, who signs a seven-year treaty with Israel, a seven-year ratifies a seven-year deal with Israel, he goes into the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, and he declares himself to be God and insists that the Jews worship him in the temple as God. It's at this point, the Bible says, Jesus said in Matthew 24, that they realize that they are um, duped, they've been tricked, he's not the Messiah, and then they flee, possibly to Petra. Petra is there in Jordan and near Amman, Jordan. It's a rock city. We go there on some of our tours. And the reason why we go to, to Amman, Jordan, and to this city, this rock city called Petra, is because it's possible, very possible, um, it's in close proximity. It has all the factors. It's the only place within a million miles uh, from, you know, geographically where the Jews could go. And it makes a lot of sense that during that point they'll go. Well, that temple that, that, that has to be rebuilt. Now, some people will say that, um, you know, we're in the tribulation period, that the tribulation period has begun. And those that are mid or post-tribulation rapture theory might try to convince you or say one of the, one of the big factors, the main factors, and some of my buddies who I love, good friends of mine, and they, they are mid post-trib guys, and they're always trying to put us in the trib somewhere. And I always, I always ask them the same question. Well, where's the temple? And they laugh and they know they're wrong because there, there cannot be, we have to have a temple. There has to be a temple. I mean, at the three and a half, and it'll go quick. But at some point at the three and the middle part of the tribulation period, it's very clear. Not, we don't argue about this. 
the abomination of desolation takes place. The Antichrist will enter the temple in Jerusalem and declare himself to be God. So in order for that to happen, there has to be a temple. So one of the signs is, and, and, and is absolutely biblical, and you know, 100 years ago we had a hard time making sense of this, especially with no Israel and no Jerusalem and no Holy Land, but now it's starting to make a lot more sense and we can start to put the pieces together. But um, today the, there's, a, there's, a, there's an institute that's called Temple Mount Institute in Israel, and it's there on the, um, on the old city in the Jerusalem quarter. Um, it, it's, a, it's a museum. Brian and I have been there. Um, when we went, uh, we, we slept through part of it. Oh my gosh, it was, it was laborious. But you take this two-hour tour through um, the uh, Temple Institute, and, and they have, and in there, they show you, um, they're, they're now, right now in Israel, and they're almost done, but they're, they're reconstructing all the artifacts, and they're doing this kind of work that Solomon's doing here in in first Kings of rebuilding and preparing the things of the temple, same work that David did prior to, you know, David wanted to build the temple for God. And God said, you can't build the temple. You're a man of war. Your hands are bloody. Um, but David, but God didn't say he couldn't get the temple ready. So David began to get the temple ready. Well, that's happening literally in Israel today. And when you go there, one of the things that's real fascinating about it is you'll see like the golden laver. You'll see the bronze altar. You'll see the um, things of sacrifice and they have them behind glass that they're there. Well, the things that are there in the Temple Mount Institute today are not replicas. They're the actual artifacts that are already done and have been built that when the Jews get to rebuild their temple that will go into the new temple. What they're doing now, and this is stuff you'll, you'll catch on news blurts and stuff and on Facebook. I'll share these stories every once in a while when they see them. And so it makes sense or it's relevant to you. They're, they're training and have been um, there in the Temple Institute in, in Jerusalem, in Israel, in the old city, um, in the Jewish quarter. They're training um, the Levitical priesthood because they're going to have to redo animal sacrifices. They're going to have to perform the deeds in the temple. And everything that was happening in the temple from the time of Solomon until A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed. And so, but it's super fascinating. It's all there. They have all the stuff. They have all the artifacts. They have all the um, actual things that will go in the temple, the menorahs and the, you know, the, the, the ramps and the, everything is all there to go in the temple. But, the, but Solomon's temple, I think when you see pictures, if you see pictures of the temple of Jesus's day, when, when you think of that area, you think of the Dome of the Rock, right? That golden dome that sits there in Israel. And if you, if you picture, you know, Temple Mount, that's kind of the idea. Well, that's a Muslim site, right? It's not even a Jewish site. But next to the Dome of the Rock, the temple that Jesus would have been in, Herod's temple, would have dwarfed the, the, the today's Dome of the Rock, which is a big icon in the city of, of Jerusalem today. Um, and the new temple, will, again, will absolutely dwarf the, um, the, the Dome of the Rock in size. Now, real quick, just without boring you guys too much, too late. But um, the... Um, the Bible describes in the book of Ezekiel a third temple, okay? Ezekiel is what's called Ezekiel's third temple. And so you can read about Ezekiel's third temple, very fascinating. He says, you know, lay out the outer courts and it's been given over to the Gentiles and all these dimensions and, and ideas for Ezekiel's third temple. So where we are in history, it would make sense that the next temple that, that needed to be built would be Ezekiel's temple or the third temple or Ezekiel's temple. But the Jews today, they're not, they're not constructing the plans and, and they're not building Ezekiel's temple. 
And the reason why they're not building the temple that's described in the book of Ezekiel is because they can't understand it. They, they can't figure out how to build it and how to make it. And, and so they've just kind of ignored the, the Ezekiel's third temple plans and went back to where we are here, the Solomon's temple plans, and they're building, they're gonna, what they're constructing and getting ready to construct is Solomon's temple, the second temple. Now, the reason why they don't understand that they can't build Ezekiel's temple is because Ezekiel's temple and the description that God gives us in the book of Ezekiel for the third temple is actually during the millennial reign and, and it's yet future and they, can't, they just can't see that far and there's things that are just supernatural that, that make no sense to them. Well, sure, it wouldn't make sense because it's, it's going to be um, um, post the return of Jesus Christ. So that's why they're, they're a little confused on that. All right. So that brings us to chapter 5. Solomon, look at, look at verse, let's start in verse 13. It says, Then King Solomon raised up a labor force out of all of Israel, and the labor force was 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. And they were one month in Lebanon and two months home. Edoniram was in charge of the labor force, and Solomon had 70,000 who carried burdens and 80,000 who carried stone in the mountains. You wonder how they built these old things? Hard labor. 70,000. Even in Egypt, you know, some of the phenomenons of the things of Egypt, most of it was just back-breaking labor. But um, not a bad work schedule. Anybody want this schedule? They would work a month and take two months off. Now, I don't know if it was if it was so hard that um, they just needed two months off because it was so physically hard for a month, but I think any of us would take a schedule like that, you know, where you get to work a month, get two months off, work a month, get two months off. Um, so, hey, real quick, and then in, in also in 5 and, and 6 as we go through this, I, I want to just tell you, let's look at verse 17. It says, And then King Solomon commanded them to quarry large stones, costly stones of hewn stones, and to lay the foundation of the temple. So Solomon's bearder Hiram built, and the Gibeites quarried them, and they prepared timber and stones and built the te- and built the temple. So one of the things in the building of Solomon's temple that's super fascinating is that um, the, all the stones, the way that Solomon built it, every stone in the quarry and in the in the temple building was quarried off site, which means they were they would um, because he didn't want the sound of neither chisel nor hammer at the site of the of the temple and where the holy of holies would be. So they would quarry them off site and then they would bring them to the foreman on, on site and, and, and the foreman would put them in place. And, and even to this day, in some of the parts that still remain in the wall, in the western wall, um, in the area below what you can see in the old city, the tunnels down there, the, 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 the craftsmanship was so perfect that you can't fit a credit card between the stones. And the temple was built with no mortar. And so it was, it was absolutely built with, with perfect craftsmanship and 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 skilled labor now the bible talks about one of the gifts in the old testament one of the gifts of the spirit i think it's fascinating but god gave to men gifts to do stonework gifts to do craftsmanship and there was a gift of the holy spirit that was given to laborers you know and and again without getting off too far the 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 way the holy spirit and and the functions today in our lives post jesus was different in the old testament jesus said it's better that i go away because if I go away, I'll send a helper, a comforter to you. And the Bible says that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. 
when we say, um, you know, it's kind of nursery rhyme, in it, but it's theologically, it's actually correct. But we say, um, you know, to, to lead people to Christ, we say, would you like to ask Jesus in your heart? You know, and little kids go like, how's he going to fit in there? You know, or, you know, we tell the kids, where's Jesus? He's in my heart, you know. Um, and and we, we use this term, ask Jesus in your heart. But theologically, it's very correct. Because the Bible says that, that God is going to fill you with the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is going to come into your life, that when God sees you, you're made righteous in God's eyes. We, talk, we, we read a verse on Sunday, and it says that, that the fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man avails much. And we look at that and we think, well, I'm not righteous. I, I, I shouldn't be praying those prayers. I'm not a righteous person. But you are a righteous person based on imputed righteousness because when God looks at you, he sees his son. God has placed his son in your life and in your heart. Well, that, that, that dispensation is really new post-Jesus dying and raising from the grave. Before that, it was only rare throughout history where God actually filled people with his Holy Spirit. It only happened a few times. We see um, King Saul, or not Solomon, Samson. And the Bible says, gives testimony of Samson, that Samson was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Um, John the Baptist, who was Old Testament, he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. But that, that, that's something that, that, that God is doing new. So in the Old Testament, what we see is where the Holy Spirit would almost appear and, 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 and help and work through somebody, but not indwell them and stay and live in them and with them like he does in you and I today, except for, like I said, a slight few. But one of the things, like I said, we see is where God didn't, in general, fill people with the Holy Spirit. He endowed certain people. He gave certain people gifts of the Holy Spirit, even for kind of weird things that God needed service for. And this particular one was building the temple. The story goes on that um, a certain stone came over from the quarry. And the foreman at the, at the site he didn't know where it fit. And so he threw the stone off to the side. And, and the building of the temple took, oh, I have it on here somewhere, seven years to construct. And, and so in, in, in the seven years, at some point, this stone came over that he didn't know where it fit in the, in the temple building. So they set it off to the side. And over years, the, the weeds and the grass and everything had grown up over and buried that stone. Well, when the project had finished, when they were getting ready to put on the chief cornerstone, the final stone on the temple, um, the, the foreman calls back to the quarry and he says, we're ready now for the chief cornerstone. And, the, and the, the foreman at the quarry says, well, I sent that thing over years ago. And then they said, well, no, we don't have it. He said, well, I sent it. It's here in the logs. It's in the records. I sent it years ago. So one of the workers said, well, remember that old stone? We didn't know where it went. We threw it over there and the grass has grown up over it. Let's go check that. So they, they went and they cut the grass and they found this stone. And sure enough, the stone, you guys know how the saying goes? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And it's a, it's a you know, it's an idiom or a, a, a type of Jesus and a prophecy of Jesus. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And, and in this, this true story of when Solomon and his guys were building the temple, it's kind of become a a biblical theme in a couple ways. Peter picks up. Turn with me to Acts real quick, chapter 4. Let's look at uh, verse number 
in Acts chapter 4, in, verse, in chapter 5, in verse 5, it says, And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers and elders and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, as many as were the family of the high priest, were gathered together in Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked them, By what power or by what name have you done this? And so Peter and John, just a little background, Peter and John, the two apostles, the two disciples of Jesus, Peter who, you know, everybody knows Peter, John who wrote the Gospel of John, Revelation, 1st, 2nd John. Um, they're, they're there in Jerusalem. It's in the early days. Jesus has just died on the cross, rose again. Fifty days later, the Holy Spirit was poured out on Pentecost, and the early church began. Peter and John began to preach and teach around Jerusalem, and, and they immediately in chapter 4 of Acts, they get arrested by the Sanhedrin, the religious folks, and um, Peter and, uh, and, and John are there, and there's this famous story of this. They're by the um, temple, and this guy is begging alms, and, and Peter looks at him, and the guy says, alms, 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 and Peter looks at him, and he says, and this is nursery rhyme stuff, so I, I expect you guys to know this stuff. No. He says, silver and gold have I none, but what I have give I thee in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And he went leaping and singing and praising God, leaping. No, nobody? You guys never went to Sunday school? No? All right. So um, so that, that had just happened. The guy was sitting by the gate begging alms, and, and Peter and John prayed for him and healed him. And for the first time, the paralytic man rose. So they call him in and they say, by what power um, or what name have you done this? Verse 8, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I want, I want to again just highlight really quickly. Verse number 8, we, we on, uh, in, on this side of the cross, in this dispensation, we, we, again, we take this for granted. But this was new, even in Peter. Peter and John and James, they weren't filled, empowered, and dwelled with the Holy Spirit until John chapter 21. That was after Jesus died on the cross. He appeared to him on the beach. Remember the little story where Jesus makes breakfast on the beach after he's risen? He, it says that Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. And so even for these guys, this being filled with the Spirit here in verse number 8, it's, it's new. But Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be made known to you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. And then Peter goes on, he says, This is the stone which the rejectors, or excuse me, this is the stone which was rejected. By you builders, which has come become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. A good verse for salvation, verse 12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus liked that word must too. He used it in John chapter 3 many times. You must be born again. But Peter here, he picked up on that old um, traditional story, folk story, of Solomon building the temple and the stone that the rejectors build, or the stone that the, the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And that's exactly what Peter's talking about there in chapter 4. Just thought that was kind of interesting. Um, Peter talks about it again in his own epistle. And then um, Psalm 118, 
You don't have to turn there if you don't want. I'll just read it real quick, just for reference. Psalm 118.22 says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And again, like I said, another note, if you're taking notes, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, Peter talks about that, that concept, that idea. So when you see that, now you know where it comes from. Now you know the rest of the story. Like Paul Harvey. Pastor Paul Chris Harvey, I like it. Um, then uh, we go on to chapter 7. And in chapter 7, the temple uh, finishes. And in uh, the finishing of the temple, Solomon begins to build his own house. You know, what's interesting is that Solomon took seven years to build the temple and he spent, you know, 20 years building his own house. So I don't know what that says about his own house versus the Lord's house. He spent a lot more time and energy and money building his own house than he did the house of the Lord. Uh, Real quick, the only one highlight in chapter seven. I just want to point this out for where you live. Um, In verse 24, let's go to verse 23, 723. He says, and he made the sea of cast bronze, 10 cubits from one brim to the other. It was completely round. Its height was five cubits and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. Below its brim, listen, were ornamental buds encircling it all around, 10 to a cubit all the way around the sea. The ornamental buds were cast in two rows when it was cast. That's not what I was looking for. Here it is. It was stood, verse 25, it stood on 12 oxen. Three looking toward the north, three looking toward the west, three looking toward the south, three looking toward the east. The sea was set upon them, and all their backs part pointed inward. It was a handbreadth thick, and the brim of its shape was like the brim of a cup, like a lily blossom. It contained 2,000 baths, or or, or ritual pools. So, um, does that sound familiar to anybody? The 12 oxen, the, the baptismals, anybody seen that? No? No? Where? Yeah, have you guys seen the LDS temple? And the, yeah, well, obviously, I've never seen the inside, but I've seen the visitor center, the, the mock. But the, the temple in Salt Lake has that same design. And, and again, if you're curious where that came from or where that was, that was actually something that Solomon built in the first temple. And so they've tried to reconstruct it or rebuild it. But that's where um, it comes from, the 12 oxen um, with the baptismals on their back. Interesting. All right. So then in chapter 8, so the temple um, temple's decorated on the inside in chapter 7. In chapter 8, uh, the temple is dedicated. It's brought to the temple. Now, I said before that the, 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 the temple itself was only 2,700 square feet. Now, just price-wise, the temple cost, I guess, today's, and I don't know how old these numbers are when you look this stuff up, whether it's relevant today or 10 years ago or what, but it gives you a general idea, but about uh, um, $27 million for the construction of the temple. So 2,700 feet, some of you guys' houses are bigger than that, okay? But you didn't spend, um, what number did I just say on the millions? Oh, no, that 2,700 square feet, sorry, $11 million in today's temples or today's numbers. So, you know, you have a 3,000 square foot house, but you didn't spend $11 million on it. But that was just the actual um, part of the temple itself where the Holy of Holies was. 
but the entire construction with with the outer courts and the, and the, and everything that went to do with the temple was more was a big number um, in the billions, and so by today's estimations, uh, hundred, over a hundred billion dollars to construct the, the the entire thing. They're building these stadiums now, right? Like um, it was Dallas for a minute, right? And what did what did they say? Does anybody know what the numbers are? Was it was it a billion dollars? A billion with a B? It was like one point two or something. What was it for Dallas when they when they finished? Was it? I was that's not sure. I didn't want to. Okay, so it was a hundred billion. That's what I was thinking. A hundred billion, and then they were the most expensive, elaborate stadium ever built. And then now they now there's now it's like third or fourth in line. There's one in Minnesota now that's more than that. And Dallas, the one in Dallas really is not that old when they when they finished it. It has the biggest screen in the world. Um, and then there's one in Minnesota. There's one in and the one in L.A. is going to be the latest, greatest, topping them right now. And 1.2, okay, 1.2, and then 1.4, and then 1.7, just ridiculous amount of money, you know, hundreds of hundreds of millions of dollars, and, and so, yeah, so, but it's still 140 is a big number, if that, or over 100 is a big number, if that's, I don't know how relevant that stuff is. So then in chapter 9, um, they dedicate the temple in chapter 8. In chapter 9, we're going to pick up a place in Solomon's life where the Lord appears to Solomon a second time, and gives him a warning about um, falling dangers. Let's look at chapter 9, verse number 1. And it says, And it came to pass when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all Solomon's desire he wanted to do. And the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time as he had appeared to him in Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. I have consecrated this house which you have built to put my name there forever and my and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually now if everybody say if if you walk before me as your father david walked in integrity of heart and uprightness to do according to all that i have commanded you and if you keep my statutes and my judgments then everybody say then hey the bible is full of conditional promises now, first of all, God appears to Solomon. We studied that last week. And really one of our kind of, I don't know, funnest things I think you see in the Bible. God shows up to Solomon. And, you know, I said in my sermon last Sunday that God's not a genie in a bottle. You know, our father who art in heaven, not our genie who art in heaven. And part of the, the struggle I see, think sometimes we have as Christ followers, as Christians, is, and I see it all the time. I see people who know Jesus, who love Jesus, who have been walking with the Lord a long time. And, and something happens in their life. A wife gets sick. A, a, kid, a kid's going through a divorce. Some kind of struggle. And, and they start to doubt their faith. They start to question because the idea that God is a genie in a bottle and that, that, that they're not getting their wishes. And, and those things shouldn't rock us. Not, not that we should love those things. But they should never rock our faith. They should never rock who Jesus is and, and, and what's true and what's real. And, and so, but, but that part of that, well, I think we can avoid some of that. If we understand that, that that he's a father, he's a good, good father, and not um, a, a genie in the bottle, and and so here we see where where God shows up to Solomon in his one genie moment in the Bible, and he's like a genie in this moment, the one time, and he says to Solomon, "You can have whatever you want. I'll give you anything you ask for. You get one wish, and 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 this is not you know the genie who struggles to complete wishes. This is 
God who can give him absolutely everything and anything he wants. And Solomon just asks for wisdom. He says, Lord, I want, I want wisdom to lead your people well. I want wisdom to guide the house of the Lord. And God was pleased with his answer. And he said, Solomon, because you asked for wisdom and not the life of your enemies and not riches and power and fame, I'm going to give you wisdom and I'm also going to give you all of those other things. And then God makes Solomon the richest person that's ever lived in human history. The, the, the smartest person that ever, that's ever lived in human history. The wisest person that's ever lived in human history. The, the most erotic person that's ever lived in human history. Um, in, in every, every, every way, Solomon reaches the top of every category there is in, in human existence. Solomon is that guy. Well, now God comes back to him later in his life, and he's reappearing, but this time not necessarily with a blank check, but with a condition, a conditional promise. And again, the, the reason why I talked about the genie and just about, you know, even people, like I said, who, who I don't mean to pick on, but, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I get discouraged sometimes when I, see, when I see them discouraged and I see them doubting themselves. And I'm like doubting their faith. And I'm, I don't know. I just don't get it I, 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 for them. I hurt for them. I break for them. And, and, and I feel like, like man, you've, you've been walking with the Lord a long time, you would think. But... Who knows, maybe when I'm there, I'll be the same way. But they, um, the, the, the condition, there is some, some conditional promises in what God has for you. Just the truth. Now, some, some of God's promises are unconditional. Some of God's love for you is unconditional. God's, God's favor and a lot of things are unconditional. But all the way through, I think if we're being consistent, we have this if-then clause. If-then, 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 if-then. And just kind of being true to that, that, that if-then clause in the Bible that, Sometimes it's an if then. And he says, if you walk before me, verse four, look at nine, four. Does this trip anybody out but me? If you walk before me as your father, David walked in integrity of heart and uprightness. (laughs) What does God remember about King David? His terrible sins. He just says, hey, if you walk with me like King David, your father did in integrity and uprightness of heart. You think, Lord, are we talking about the same David? But he was. The Lord had forgiven his sins. God didn't see his sins. God didn't claim what his mistakes were. His mistakes didn't define him. Your mistakes don't define you. God doesn't define you by your shortcomings, by your mistakes. By your, he defines you by your, your strengths, by the things that he's instilled in you, the things he's given you, the blessings. And I just love, I love, 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 close to David's death, God shows up to his son Solomon and the thing that he, that, that he remembers and that he, he says and he speaks over the life of King David was that David was upright and that David was a good guy. And then in verse 5 it says, that means there's hope for me and you. Okay? Then I will establish the throne of the kingdom over Israel forever. And as I promised your father David, saying you shall not fall, fail to have a man sit on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons do not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you, you go and serve other gods of worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. Then the house which I, which I have created, consecrated, I'm sorry, for my name, I will cast out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And as for this house which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and will hiss and say, Why has the Lord done thus and thus to this land and to this house? And then they will answer because they forsook the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt 
and have embraced other gods and worshiped them and served them before the Lord has brought all this calamity on them. So um, I think, again, you guys, just real quick, hopefully this is, can be in love, but, but a little bit of a uh, reality check, right? Um, God, God, and it's hard. I get to, I understand that I don't understand it and I understand that, that it's complicated. Now, now we believe in a sovereign God, that God is absolutely sovereign over every part of your life. But, but I, I think it's fair to say that God doesn't do to you sometimes the things he gets blamed for. God doesn't, doesn't curse you. Bad things don't happen to your life because you, you made a mistake or you have some sin that God is trying to get back at you for. It doesn't work that way. God, God, is not, God, God, God sometimes, I think, gets the blame for stuff he had nothing to do with. You know, some people say, Lord, why'd you do that? And I'm like, don't blame that on Lord. Lord didn't do that to you. And, they, and the argument is circular, and I get it. Well, well, if God didn't do it directly, he allowed it, because that's the way it works, right? That's the biblical model, right? Yeah, that's the way it works. God didn't effectively kill Job's kids, but God could have avoided it. God did allow Satan to do it. So in essence, then God did do it, right? Well, no, he didn't. Satan did it. You know, and, I, and again, like I said, I, I understand it's circular. But at the same time, um, you, you can't discount the will of man and, and, and the, the sovereignty of God. They're, they're two banks of the same river. You still have free will, and God still has absolute sovereignty. And, 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 and yet, God didn't do that to you. And, and, and there is an if and, and then clause that we see biblically that I think would apply in your and my life today. God will bless you in spite of you. God will do something in your life because you don't deserve it. All the time in my life, God um, supernaturally blesses and, and brings fruit and does things. And I know it's in a season when I, I just don't deserve it. He's doing it to show me that it's not about works. It's about relationship. And that it's through relationship. And everything is born out of relationship. And, and so I don't deserve it, but something crazy good is happening. And it's not because I earned it. And when something bad happens, it's not because I sinned and now God is, is punishing me. You know, I recently it was uh, driving down the street with a guy. Okay, it was my brother. And, uh, you know, my brother was whining about something uh, that was happening, something he was going through. And um, and we had this exact conversation because he had said something like, you know, well, I don't know, God, God's doing something to me. I said, God didn't do that to you. He said, well, God doesn't, doesn't God do everything? Or God doesn't, doesn't God allow everything and make everything happen? And I was mad. I'm mad, but I was serious. We were having like a brother conversation that I could have with my brother. And I stopped the car and I said, I said, you idiot. I said, you get out of this car and go, go run your head against that tree right there. I said, just get out, put your head down and run full speed and run your head into that tree. I said, then don't tell me when you got a lump on your head, why God put a lump on your head. Like you, you get out of the car and you run head first into that tree. You got a lump on your head because you're a dummy. <laughs> Not because God put a lump on your head. And so, again, you guys understand, right? Are we, we're, we're, again, right? We're kind of talking. I'm talking in a circle. I get it. I get it. I get it. But there are if-then clauses. There are things that God just doesn't do to us that we, we give, him, give him trouble for. Amen? So, but God does love you, does care for you. And, um, you know, the Bible says that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. So everything good in your life comes from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. The Bible says that God thinks good thoughts towards you, that God, 
God desires good things. I think Chuck Smith is the one who used to say on the other end of the spectrum. He said, God gave you a brain. He expects you to use it. And sometimes, you know, you, you can't fix stupid. You know, and we're just, it's, it's, not, it's not that God, it's not that God punished somebody. They just made bad choices, right? So if we make bad choices, we should own up and, um, and just trust the Lord. Amen? All right, I'm done. I'm off my soapbox. Um, we're almost done to you guys. Let's let's try to finish through at least 11 the life of Solomon tonight. Um, so basically, God shows up with this if then clause, and um, every every rule that that God gave. Look at verse. Uh, no, no, no. Let's not. Um, every rule that God gave Solomon breaks in his life. Solomon is a terrible example of this if then clause here. God told the kings not to do three things. What were they? Not to multiply wives, horses, and gold and silver. Wives, horses, and money. Wives, horses, gold, and silver. Solomon had 1,700 wives, 300 concubines, had more horses than he knew what to do with, and he had more silver and gold than he could count. He, he broke every one of them. Um, in chapter 10... Um, verse number one. Now, this is always an interesting story to me. Chapter 10, verse one. Uh, this is the queen of Sheba. Let's take a quick look at this. It's fascinating. I'm going to give you guys a little bit of heresy in this chapter and then we'll move on. In chapter 10 and verse one, it says, now when the queen of Sheba heard that the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with her questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great routine with camels that bore spices, very much very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. So Solomon answered her all the questions. And there was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain it to her because of his great wisdom, obviously God-given. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon in the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters and the apparel of his cupbearers and the entryway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. He had wooed her over, man. She had nothing left. She was the queen of Sheba, uh, and, and she had come, and she, had, she came all the way from Ethiopia because she heard of the splendor of Solomon. And when she got there, um, it was greater than all the rumors. You know, you know how rumors grow and how much rumors can spread. She said that one of the things that's mentioned is by the way that he would enter his house. Well, the opulence in which Solomon built his house. We already had said, and I, I didn't find the year, um, but he built seven years building the Lord's house. And I forget it was 20-something years building his own house. But three times as the amount of time building his own house. And he spared no expense. And that they said that Solomon had in his house, in the entryway that's, that's mentioned here, a hanging garden, an upside-down garden that would, would have been or was one of the seven wonders of the world. And, and, and just, I mean, you just can't imagine the, 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 the level of opulence. You know, I, I think of like, how many of you guys have seen online, like the, some of the stuff that the Sikhs are doing in Saudi Arabia or the, uh, the sheiks, the, 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 the most richest people in the world. Like the one guy has a house. You can look this stuff up, but opulence, like you can't, can't imagine. Like 300-bedroom house, he has cars, 17 cars in the front that are fully um, covered in gold and, you know, all this stuff, right? All this opulence. But um, Solomon, way, 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 way more, way more than anybody's ever 
been able to achieve in human history because God allowed it for a specific reason in human history. So when she shows up, she's, she's like, oh, okay, it's legit. Like, you're legit. This is legit. And then in verse 6, it says, Then she said to the king, It was, it was a true report, which I heard um, in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes. And indeed, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and your prosperity exceed the fame of which I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel because the Lord has loved Israel. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteous. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold, spices, and great quantities of precious stones. And there never again came such abundance of spice and the queen of Sheba as the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Also the ships of Hiram, which brought gold and Ophir, brought quantities among the wood and precious of Ophir. And the king made steps. So here's the history behind this story. And again, this is a little bit of heresy I'm going to teach you guys tonight. Um, the rest of the heresy. Well, the, the tradition says um, that the queen of Sheba here, the queen of Ethiopia, that she goes back to Ethiopia, pregnant with Solomon's child. So um, there, there's some some prophecies and some belief, even in Ethiopia to this day, there's actually a, a, a very high um, Jewish Ethiopian population. Even in Jesus's day, some of those who um, we see in the gospel stories and the narratives were Ethiopian Jews. Very likely um, because of what happened here when the queen um, came with an entourage to Israel, to Jerusalem. She goes back to Ethiopia. Um, she's very impressed with Israel, with the king of Israel, and with Solomon specifically. Um, um, she, and and that's, that's Bible, right? That's, that's all there. That's in the history. What's, what's tradition is that she was pregnant when she went home. Now, what, what, and this is Ethiopian tradition as well. So she keeps this tradition, or this tradition goes on, and, and this, this baby, who's, who's the son of Solomon, in line of succession, comes to a, pro, uh, not a proverb, but a prophecy of, of the Messiah, or a future Messiah of, of, the, of, of Africa, basically. So the, the Rasta re, religion, Rastafarianism, Rastafarianism, which, which Bob Marley is adhered to and Bob Marley followed for so long. But in, in the Rasta culture and the Rasta religion, you can, you, know, you can watch the things today, documentaries you can find from them. They, basically, the, the, the prophecy is that um, when, when a certain black um, ruler came over the, the, this area of Africa, that it, it would be the Messiah. And, and this particular Messiah would have to um, fall in line from the Queen of Sheba and, um, and Solomon in succession. And that would be the, the, the Rasta religion's belief system and lots of other stuff that go with it. Well, in the <clears throat> um, – I'm going to get these years wrong now. In the 40s, 50s, there was, there was a, a king in, in Ethiopia – and his name was Haley Selassie. And Haley Selassie, at that point, he, he fit the mold. He was the first um, black king in this whatever prophecy that, that, that fulfilled this Rastafarian. So Rastafarianism hails and hailed um, this Ethiopian king from the last century 
called Haley Selassie as their Messiah. So even Bob Marley and, and his group, you know, they, they would worship and they, would, they, would, they believed, they would sing about and write about, and a lot of the things in, the, in Bob Marley's music and in the Rasta religion re- revolved around this folklore tradition of this king of Solomon and queen of Bathsheba's child called Haley Selassie. So, and, and Haley Selassie was, was a king, a ruler in Ethiopia, and uh, he did some good things. And, um, and well, what's interesting is that when Bob Marley, when he died, he, he was brought back to the United States somewhere in uh, Oklahoma, I think, at a, at a cancer clinic. The reason why he died, his cancer was actually treatable. He had a, a, a cancerous um, in his big toe from playing soccer and um, something that, became, that, that was cancerous and could have been dealt with and cut out. But the Rasta religion wouldn't, he didn't believe in surgeries and, and certain medicines, so he, he refused them. And he refused them so long that the cancer metastasized and spread through the rest of his body. And before where it wasn't, it wasn't terminal, it had become terminal. Well, when he became terminal at a young age with cancer, he finally received some Western medicine and some medical medicine. And, and Bob ended up in a cancer facility in the United States where his, his cousin, um, was was a born again Christian and the doctor was a born again Christian and his his cousin and this doctor shared the gospel with Bob Marley and and on his deathbed when when he was getting ready to die and he was you know on his deathbed his family and friends had gathered and all traveled to come in and they knew that it was going to be any day now and um, on his deathbed that the the story goes that Bob Marley said uh, I'm ready Jesus come get me. And the people around him are like, he must be delusional. Didn't he mean Haley Selassie come get me? And they're like, no, he said Jesus. But it was the story of his cousin and the doctor that they led him to Jesus on his deathbed. I like that story because that means that when we get to heaven, we're going to have some good reggae music. And Bob will be there. So I I like that part of the story. All right. And then, um, so that's. That's 10 in chapter, um, or in chapter 10, we're, we're, again, we're walking through quickly. In chapter 10, the rest of chapter 10, the only other highlight, I think, really quick, this number only appears a couple times in the Bible, and whether I want to make doctrine out of this or just highlight it or not, you guys can decide. But look at verse 14, chapter 10, verse 14, and it says, The weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. Somebody say, ooh, 666 talents gold so that's personal salary so he he made 666 talents of gold you know again sometimes you know i don't get boogaboo about about numbers and certain things there are actually biblical numerology and certain things that that have like the number 13 for example it's a it is an evil number um biblically because it's the number of 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 rebellion it's the number of satan the number six is another number which is part of 666, but the number six is the number of man and, and of the flesh and of a life apart from God. Some of those things are true, but right, they don't, but those things don't haunt us. They don't affect us. If you see 13 or six or something like that, it doesn't mean anything in your life. It's just a number. So we don't, but here, it, what, what I think it's just noteworthy, at least just to point it out, because this particular number 666, we know in Revelation that where we where we get that is that there comes a, a mark of the beast. The Bible talks about that in in the in the last days that everybody who receives the mark of the beast and that the beast, which is Satan, has a number and his number is six hundred and sixty six. 
And so that, that becomes a biblically significant number. That's why people use it for, um, you know, Satan and different things, that number 666, because it rep- biblically it is going to be the number of Satan and the Antichrist, and it's a part of the mark of the beast. Um, everybody who receives that mark will go to hell. There will be no salvation after for those folks that receive the mark of the beast. That's a final decision for eternity. And here we have Solomon's wage listed in the same number. But at this point in Solomon's life, he's in rebellion, full-on rebellion against God. Um, he, he's uh, And just for, for interest, if you're interested, because we're going to be done with Solomon tonight, but Solomon wrote um, the Proverbs, okay, all the wisdom, all good stuff. And, and he also wrote uh, Song of Solomons, which is like a, a, a sex manual. You can't read it till you're 30 years old. So if you're under 30, you can't read it. And then, um, and then Ecclesiastes, which is, um, it, it's an interesting book. It's one of the books that when, when I was talking to the boys, Luke was telling me, my son was telling me that he ended up in Ecclesiastes and, and all his vanity. And basically it's the, sum, it's the summary of Solomon's life in all of the ventures that God allowed him to reach the top in, the wealth, the education, the, the relationships, the um, drugs, alcohol, women, money, everything that, that Solomon had. And, and he writes a story about it. And it's, it's recorded in the book of Ecclesiastes. And um, that's, that's interesting. Our, you know, a good read for you guys if you're interested in this time as we go through Solomon. You can check out Ecclesiastes. The easy read. It's not very long. I think 11 or 12 chapters. Um, and then in verse chapter 11, and then Solomon's going to die in a minute, you guys, and we'll be done. Um, so chapter 11 is like the hinge or the door for um, First Kings, because um, the, the the first 11 chapters they cover uh, about 40 years. They last about 40 years. The last 11 chapters are of, of First Kings is going to go through the history of the kings and last about 80 years. Uh, the last 11 chapters, there's many wars, there's civil wars, there's lots of different kings. The first 11 chapters here are um, only one king. And then um, in verse number 11, it says, chapter 11, verse 1, it says, But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughters of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, Hittites. All of these are mentioned. Why? Because these are all forbidden women. And it says foreign women, foreign, forbidden, same thing. Um, all of the people of the Hittites, the Ammonites, the Hittites. You know, one of the biggest troubles for God's people really throughout their entire history was, was the, the pagan women that, that they, they took as wives. God forbids it over and over. And not, nothing caused Israel more trouble than this one area for thousands of years of history. Every time they got in major trouble, it, it, every time it had to do with the taking wives from the, from the foreign um, from the Canaanites. And, and God said, if you do that, your hearts will go after the gods of the Canaanites. And that's exactly what happened. And, you know, all the way through, goodness, it, it is so overwhelming that I, I really can't emphasize it enough. I mean, I was starting, my mind was starting to think about Solomon, I mean, Solomon and Samson and on and on and on of all the, the, the people that it, that it caused trouble for. In the New Testament, it's no different. Okay, real quickly, I won't, I won't preach. I'll just tell you. You just got to receive this. The Bible says, do not be unequally yoked together with non-believers. Okay, just a bottom line. Okay, 
So I'm not talking about folks that have already been married or been married for a while. That's a different situation. I'm talking about for single folks. Okay? Do not be unequally yoked together with non-believers. If you do that, you will have trouble. God warns you from Genesis to Revelation because he loves you. The number one problem that God's people had throughout history was this issue. So don't make the same mistake because God's, God's word is full of it. And, and listen, just trust God. God's got somebody good for you. He's got somebody, somebody the right person for you. All right, um, we're out of time. So uh, real quick, Solomon dies, and then the kingdom gets divided next week. So Solomon writes a book on uh, how to raise children, and then he fails in that area. He writes a book about the deception of riches, and then he failed in that area. He writes uh, chapters about the power of uh, seductive foreign women, and then he failed in that area. So um, read the Proverbs, read Ecclesiastes. Let's stand.